Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Saturdays. This program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, August 15th, 2020. Praise Yahweh, and thank you for listening. Once again, we are here with TruthVids to discuss his 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. This is part three of our series, and it's being pre-recorded here Wednesday morning, August 12th. Hello, TruthVids, and thank you for joining us once again. Hey, Bill. Thanks for having me, as always. Yeah, so we're on to part three. This is uh, my favorite uh, point, I guess you could say, the meaning of the word Adam, because once that comes clear, you realize what the Bible is all about, Adam kind. Um, but just before that, I think uh, the last program, there was just a few points that maybe we didn't fully clarify, and that was um, some of the Scythian migrations and particularly Alexander, when he led his campaign into the East, uh, the main point I didn't fully explain was that he ended some of the non-Israelite kingdoms, the Persians, the Medes, uh, Persians were Shemites, the Medes came from Japheth, and he settled Israelites, Greeks, into those regions, so essentially replacing them with Israelite people, and also importantly, uh, Egypt had a renaissance, it revived slightly, but they, they were Greeks. Uh, Cleopatra, you know, the most famous um, person who Caesar had uh, an affair with, she was Greek, she wasn't Egyptian. So you have to realize all these regions from then on were people of Israelites. You know, there still would have been some people scattered from the other Adamic races, but th this was the beginning of the promises made to Abraham and later the prophets that he would end all other white nations and Israel would reign supreme. Right, Bill? Well, well right. And, and we did discuss to a point how the predominant nations of the time of Christ were indeed all descended from the children of Israel. But if you look at ancient Greek history, Macedonia, or Macedonia, as it's commonly said in English, was an empire of its own. I mean, Macedonia was not a true entity, a, a, a um, world power, until the time of Alexander's father, Philip. It was itself a conglomeration of different Greek tribes, Dorian Greeks, Danan Greeks, and the Illyrians. And it could be demonstrated that at least many of the Illyrians had descended from the Trojans. There, there was a, the Dardans, were the Dardanians were a major element, a tribe which was the major element of the Illyrians. They are the Dardans of Troy. So what we had this um, empire of a sort in, in Macedonia that after the Peloponnesian Wars and, and the mutual destruction of the Athenians and the Spartans, the Macedonians rose to be a, a, a new great Greek power. And in the form of Alexander the Great, they did conquer the known world and basically put an end to the military power of all of the non-Israelite old white empires or old white nations. The Assyrians had already been destroyed. 
they were destroyed by the um, by the by a consortium of Babylonians, Persians, Medes, and the Kimeroi or, or Scythians, which were the um, the Israelites of the captivity. After Nineveh and the cities of the Assyrians were destroyed, probably about 612 BC, the Scythians didn't stay there, and and they had in large part, migrated up through the Caucasus or, or went back into the lands that they were settling north of the Araxis River, which is in, it, it was near what we would call modern Armenia and or, or the very north of modern Iraq or Iraq, I think, as it's often pronounced. Well, well, Many of the Scythians or Chimerians had also crossed Anatolia at that time, and they destroyed, and this is in Greek records, they destroyed the empire of the Phrygians, the kingdom of Midas, probably at the very end of the 7th century AD. Nineveh was destroyed by the popular chronologies about 612 B.C., and the Assyrian Empire was put an end to forever. Nineveh and the other cities of the Assyrians. And right from then, many of the Chimerians crossed Anatolia and, and destroyed everything in their path and destroyed the empire, the, the kingdom of the Phrygians, which came to an end at that time. It was gone. It was lost. Um, the land was left desolate. The Chimerians crossed the are said to have crossed the Bosporus into um, Southeast Europe, and from there, that they had um, dispersed themselves in the plains of Hungary and down the Danube River. Well, four hundred years ago, a group of them returned, and by then they were called by the Greeks Galatahi or or Galatians. And they tried once again to destroy Athens and to destroy the kingdom of Pergamus, which grew out of a part of the, of the, of the ancient Greek empires. And, and the kingdom of Pergamus actually defeated them. The Italid kings of Pergamus defeated the Galatians, but came to a sort of um, compromise with them that they would settle the old land of Phrygia, which became known as Galatia. They were Hellenized, and they were the Galatians to whom Paul had written his epistle, Hellenized Galatians. So from that point, from the point of Alexander, that's correct, and, and it's a major... Um, subject of the prophecies of Daniel, it's Daniel, um, Daniel chapter nine, I think, or I'm sorry, Daniel chapter eight. And perhaps it's mentioned more than once in Daniel. You'll see a prophecy of a, of a ram and a goat. And the ram represents the empire of Alexander and the goat represents the empire of the Persians. And the ram destroyed the goat, of course. So that's a long that, that's a long and interesting history, but we should probably leave it there. I probably said plenty. <laughs> 
Yeah, and and also um, we don't have to go into it, but just also briefly, when Caesar Caesar went up to goal and um, also finally conquered Spain, it was also mopping up these remaining um, nations or group of tribes, uh, you know, other Adamic nations. I mean, there was a lot of Phoenicians and Greeks, but it just brought it fully to an end and brought everything under the heel of the Romans. And as you said, the whole world virtually was all Israelite nations at the time of Christ. So, yeah. And, and um, is there um, anything else you wanted to say or should we move on to uh, Adam? Well, once you understand this history, that the all of the prophecies concerning the children of Israel make perfect sense. And, and we see how, I mean, there's prophecy at different levels, right? There's end times prophecy. Um, but we see how it all turns out. And, and the prophets and, and the promises to the children of Israel in the prophets become absolutely clear the way they were all fulfilled and the way that none of the words of the of the ancient prophets had ever failed. Of course, some are still to be fulfilled. That final reconciliation to Christ is still to be fulfilled. We had discussed the origin of migrations of the European people, the laws of God, which were everywhere in white European nations, how all European countries and nations were Christian at one time in fulfillment of scripture, um, how the seed of Israel or Jacob's seed was to spread across the whole world, how they were to be known as sons of God and called by a new name, which is Christians, how Israel's new home was to be primarily in the north and west of their old home, old Palestine. Now we shall discuss, I, I hope we get through four, these final four points in the first 10 of your 100 proofs that the Israelites were white. And the first one is with this word, Adam. I'm sure you might have something to say. The meaning of the term yeah, Adam. Yeah, I mean, um, God creates um, his creation, mankind, Adam, uh, and from Adam comes Eve. So you have to think, was this name just random? Did he just go, you know, I'll just call him Adam? Or does Adam actually have a meaning? And when you look into it, it means to be ruddy, to have rosy cheeks, to flush, to blush, to show blood in the face. That That's the meaning. And the meaning of the name explains what Adam should look like, what Eve, who was created out of it, out of Adam, sorry, should look like, and all his descendants should look like, and what race has that rosy red complexion, and it's only the white race, we're white, even though we are white, we have this red, you know, you can see the blood through our veins, you can see the color, it gives us all different shades of white and red, and, you know, depending on if we've been out in the sun, we get a bit redder, if you go up if you hang yourself upside down for a few seconds and stand back up you know your face goes red like a tomato right all the blood rushes to your face and that's our general appearance the other races don't have that physical appearance they just always have a brown or a dark black or you know a yellow 
a non-white color. They don't have that red bloody complexion. Um, yes. Yeah, so do you want to say anything about that? Um, yes. And, and I've told the story before in podcasts and I really don't want to, um, go on too many digressions here because we have a lot of material that I'd love to get through. But, but when I first found the Christian identity message and I began to order books because I wanted to prove it to myself, I began to order history books and things like that. But well, at one time, all I had was the strongest concordance and the Bible. And because I had little else to read or, or to do, I decided to go through every Hebrew word in a concordance. And having read a few claims in some Christian identity books that English was very closely related to Hebrew, I thought that if I could go through the concordance and see that for myself by examining the um, form and meanings of all the Hebrew words, that that would help... Um, convinced me enough to embark on deeper studies, which is what I did. So I went through every word in a concordance. And, and James Strong did a real good job of relating words to their roots. He does that constantly. But one thing I was astonished at, and this is back in 19... 97, late 97, one thing I was astonished at was that he did not connect Adam to its root. So the word dom in Hebrew means blood. And we're going to have a discussion of this here. The word dom in Hebrew means blood. But Strong failed to inform his readers that Adam is related to that word dom. Don't ask me why, but I would insist that it certainly is, and that's why it means ruddy or rosy. And Strong himself said that Adam, as, as a verb, means to show blood in the face. And it means to be ruddy or rosy as a verb. It's used that way in the scriptures. It's very clear that it's used that way. So, if it has that meaning, there must be a reason why. One thing that causes confusion is that many people do not take the understand the time to understand how James Strong had constructed his concordance. So when you look at the Hebrew dictionary in Strong's concordance, and you look at Strong's numbers 119 through 122, or actually through number 124, and a lot of people also miss that. There is a list of words that are all spelled in ancient Hebrew exactly the same. Three letters, Aleph, which is the A, Daleth, which is the D, and Mem, which is the M. Aleph is, of course, brought into Greek as Alpha, because the Greeks adopted the Phoenician alphabet, which is really the Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew alphabet. They're the same. So Aleph is Alpha in Greek, and Dalet is Delta, and Mem is um, 
mu in Greek. It's the letter M. So, these words, this list of words, 119 through 124, in the modern Hebrew, in which the Strong's Dictionary is written, the, the Hebrew letters, they're only distinguished from one another by the Masoretic vowel points. The vowel points added to the language by medieval rabbis, which did not exist when the Bible was originally written. They're not an original part. These vowel points, these little dots and dashes around the letters put in diverse places, they're not a part of the original Hebrew alphabet or Hebrew language. The vowel points are an attempt by the rabbis to distinguish the different uses of a word or its parts of speech. And Strong followed that system in his concordance. So if you look at the entry for Adam at number 119, that's the verb, to show blood in the face. Adam, number 120, is the noun referring to members of the race or the race as a whole, the children of Adam. Adam, number 121, is Adam as a proper name referring to the patriarch. Adam, number 122, is an adjective. It's the adjective meaning red, rosy, or ruddy. Adam number 123 is Edom. It's spelled Edom wherever it's used in relation to Esau, with an E-O instead of two A's, right? But it's the same Hebrew word. The designation was given to Esau, and, and there are theological reasons for that, which we should not digress on here. But it's the same word. And Adam number 124 is a ruby a garnet or a sardius, as it's translated in the King James Version. It refers to some red gemstone, which was given that name because of its redness. So it's clear, it's absolutely clear that this word Adam means ruddy, rosy, to be red, um, or, or some related meaning. So I want to take a moment to explain why Adam means ruddy, because I don't think that I've ever really done that before in a podcast or in writing, at least to this point. So I, I, um, I wrote this explanation yesterday in preparation for this program. I've already put it into the Christogenia forum, and I'll probably refine and elaborate on it in, in the future, I hope. I don't know if you have anything to say first, anything to ask. Yeah, I was just going to say how it makes perfect sense that, um, you know, you'd call the first man, give him a name, Adam, and then you could, in theory, call all his descendants an A. Adam, you know, uh, showing that you descend from that patriarch, Adam. And, you know, that happens elsewhere in the Bible that um, Yahweh calls Jacob, you know, us collectively as Jacob, because we all descend from Jacob. We are still a part of the Adamic race, but we're a tribe, one of the tribes. 
so you can understand how that makes sense. And if Adam has a certain look, a certain characteristic, you could also use it as an adjective to look Adam, to look like Adam, and that would be Wyatt with a, a ruddy complexion. So if you just think about it, it all makes sense. Well, well, absolutely makes perfect sense. It, it the word um, denotes one of the primary features of the individual that was created, and all of his descendants would have those same features. So they bear that name collectively. Let let me say that first, Hebrew words most often have a greater depth of meaning than we perceive or that words in other languages, such as English, typically have. And while I don't usually like to speak of primordial Hebrew, the um, oldest Hebrew writing that we could possibly understand, I will call primordial Hebrew, because we are constantly obstructed by Jewish disinformation and, and poor resources. But I will speak of it here. Each letter, each Hebrew letter, was originally a pictograph, a simpler version of the pictographs used in the Egyptian language, but they were originally pictographs, and they had a meaning. A pictograph with a meaning of its own, as well as having its own sound. So they were actually pretty ingenious, as far as I'm concerned. And different pictographs, which by themselves had represented different concepts, were bundled together to form rudimentary words. So while the development of the early Hebrew language is arguable, two or three pictographs, or in fewer cases, even four, were employed to form a root word that described an action or an object. So the root words of the Hebrew language consist of two, or in most cases, three, and sometimes four letters. Basically, Adam means ruddy because dam means blood, to be able to see blood through the skin, a feature that whites have above and beyond all other races. And that is why whites can be described as ruddy. The underlying tones of blood and blue veins, along with the effects of the sun, give white skin a depth of color that the other races generally do not have. The Hebrew word for dom is formed from two letters, the dalit and the mem the D and the M. The pictograph for the letter Dalit represents a door. And, and that's how um, the Greek word Delta was employed to describe the, the matrix of the womb or the entrance of a river, but which it would typically look like a D, right? Forming a triangle. So the letter Dalit represents a door. And the pictograph for the letter Mem represents water and by itself also sometimes represents blood blood is the water of life representing the door 
through which one enters the world, the matrix and the water of the womb. So together, Dalit and Mem mean blood, and the word which they form is translated as blood throughout the Bible. Christ referred to the necessity of having to be born of both water and the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. He was not referring to baptism. Rather, he was referring to the physical birth and contrasting those born physically with those who also have the spirit of God, having been born from above. Now add to blood the Aleph, which is the first letter in Adam, the Alpha, the A. The Aleph is a pictograph of an ox, and it represents power and authority. Originally, it was drawn upside right, right, with the, the, the little triangle with the two horns. If you turn an A upside down, it looks like the head of an ox. Originally, that's how it was created. That's how it was drawn. But somehow it got turned upside down by the time that the alphabet got to the Greeks and the Latin and the Romans. It, it got flipped over, right? <laughs> I, I could never explain that, right? Anyway. I was just going to say, I think they wanted to create order out of everything, you, you know, unify all the alphabet so it all looks neat and tidy. That's what I imagine the Romans did. But, well, that could be. But the, the Aleph was a pictograph of an ox, and it represents power and authority. So, unto Adam, when he was created, was given power and dominion over all the rest of the creation. So when we add authority to blood, it describes the blood which comes with the authority of God. That is the race of Adam. But Adam does not mean man. That's a lie. That's a Jewish lie and a deception. Adam does not mean man. Other Hebrew words mean man. Ish means man, and primarily Enosh means man. And children of Adam are called Enosh in the scripture, but children of other races are not called Adam. Only the Adamic race is called Adam. The words Ish and Enosh may be applied to any adult male hominid, but Adam is a particular race of man. So Adam is born from above, not only because he was given the Spirit of God, but also because the power and authority of God on the earth was given to him. His is the blood of authority, and his very name and the word used to describe his race are formed from that very concept. But not all men are from Adam, and we could prove that from the scriptures in Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 6, and quite often elsewhere throughout scripture, especially throughout those early um, chapters of Genesis, which deal with Abraham, chapter 14 and chapter 15. Not all men are from Adam. Another word, like Adam, and, and this is to help substantiate my um, 
my interpretation of the pictographs. Another word like Adam, which begins with the letter Alath, is El. El is God. Throughout the Hebrew of the Old Testament, the, the word El means God, or it could refer to a judge or person in position of authority. And more frequently, it is used to refer to a God. In the plural form, Elohim, it is used to refer to Yahweh God. And that's a plural, but it's not a plural as we use a plural in English. It's really a plural of majesty. So it, it has a different purpose than to say gods. It's elevating that the entity which is addressed by the plural. So L is God and is formed from the pictographs Alpha or Aleph, which is the ox representing um, power and authority, and Lamed, which is our letter L. And Lamed represent, was represented by an arm. It means an arm. So L means arm of power or arm of authority, which is how God was perceived. Another word is am, A-M, and it's a people in the sense of a nation. There's other words for nation, but am is a people in the sense of a nation, and that is formed from the letters Aleph and Mem, which together can mean, and, and Mem means basically water, but it was also used by itself to represent blood, speaking of, of, of um, people. So Aleph and Mem together can mean authority of the blood, because blood alone can make you a member of a people or nation. So the terms don't mean that by themselves, but when you put them together, they do mean that. They do bear that connotation. Understanding all of these things, while it is possible to get carried away with meanings so that we must be careful, we can nevertheless understand the meanings of our Old Testament with far more clarity and precision. It, it gains, when you understand the pictographs and how they were used to form these basic words of the language, then there's a whole new um, depth of meaning to the ancient Hebrew language than we typically perceive. Yeah, and that's pretty amazing, isn't it? That you, you always wonder how, who, who created the first words, how, how did it develop? And this shows you that it was with these pictographs that put in certain combinations of letters and combining the meanings, you form the first words. And from there, you get the first language. And then over time, you know, more and more words and it gets more complicated. And then we just forget where all the words come from, at least the original short root words, right? Absolutely. And, and we use English words all the time the same way. We, we really don't consider that the, um, the roots or the building blocks of our, of, of our own language. Like authority. What's an authority? Well, well an, an authority, the word authority comes from the word author. So you, you're on the authority, truly, if you were the author of something, that makes you the authority of that thing.
So that's why um, Yahweh God is the creator or the author of life. He's the only true authority. <laughs> there are claims, and, and that these are actually popular in certain um, social strata or among certain groups today. There are claims that the word Adam was derived from a longer word, Adama. And Adama describes earth in the sense of soil, but particularly red or reddish earth. So it doesn't describe any soil, right? It doesn't really describe sand or coal or anything like that, right? What we have, um, and it's very popular, and it's only found in a few places in America. And, and it's a particular um, sort of red clay. And that red clay is um, what's used, and, and it's called red clay, even though it's not really red. That's what's used to form um, baseball fields in America, is that particular type of red clay. They use it for the pitchers mound, pitcher's mounds, and especially for the pitcher's mounds. If I'm not mistaken, they might use it around the base paths, but that red clay is the most popular material to construct a baseball field from, for some reason. I think right? some, some tennis courts you have, is it that clay? Like not, it's not always grass, but yeah, sometimes the same, the red clay. That's very probable. I'm not really into tennis. I'm not really into baseball <laughs> either, but I was into baseball when I was a kid, right? So that that um that soil is it is the the type that's that's most coveted for baseball fields is only found, I think, in a few places in the country. I I, I don't remember exactly where they are. It might be Kentucky, I think South Jersey, um, places like that. So different types of clay are, are valued for different purposes anyway, that there's this um, really popular pottery from Ohio and it comes in and, and I forget the brand. I forget it, right? I forget the name, but people from Ohio will probably recognize what I'm talking about. That the settlers that were moving from Pennsylvania West had stopped in this one valley in a river on the Ohio River, I believe, in Ohio, and found this clay that, that had um that that had a really peculiar and very good quality. And they started they stopped there and they founded a pottery company eventually that sells this very colorful pottery. And it it, it if memory serves me correctly, it it can only really properly be made with that particular clay. It's something about the way it accepts color or, or whatever it is that, that um, they boast to this day about that pottery, right? They still make it, and, and um, it's still quite popular with Northeasterners, right? Or upper Midwesterners, I should say. So <laughs> different clays ha have um, 
different types of soil, of course, have different qualities. So this Adama is a particular red or reddish earth, and, and it's referred to and, and the words used in that sense in scripture. But the people that claim that Adam comes from Adama, they usually have an agenda to somehow prove that the original Adam was brown or red, like we call Indians redskins here in America. They're really not red. They're just brown, but they're light brown, so they get sunburned or whatever. It, it, they, they get this reddish quality to their skin. So for that reason, they were called redskins. But they're not white, and people want to prove that Adam was something other than white. So they make this claim that Adam came from this longer word, Adama. But this is not at all true. In language, in, in ancient language especially, but in language it is demonstrable that short words do not develop from longer words unless there's slang, which is common in modern times. But rather, longer words always develop from shorter words. If Adama means reddish earth, why does it have that meaning? We have to explain that. So to find out, we can only resort to the components, which are Adam and then Dam, which is blood. And there is no other explanation for how Adama can mean reddish earth. So that alone proves that Adama is reddish earth because Adam means ruddy or reddish, and that the term Adam could not have come from Adama. The term Adam had to exist first. And it's applied in many other ways of things that are red and reddish, such as the, the, the um, Strong's number 124, where Adam refers to a particular reddish stone. As, as a noun, a reddish gemstone. Right, and I've seen niggers and, um, you know, the black Hebrews try to claim that uh, from Adam, that means that their face was like the, the dark, the, the ground. They try and twist it and, and that that's their whole basis. But, I mean, it's all a lie. The, it, the simple component, Adam and earth, it means earth that looks like Adam, like the red, the blood. And you can't separate that meaning of blood out of Adam. It's the color of blood, not, you know, dark there or filth that um, blacks like to try and claim. Right. The claim is ridiculous. It's ludicrous. While Adam it's by itself is, an, is often an adjective, Strong's number 122, it can mean rosy or ruddy. There is another compound word, which is from Adam, that means ruddy, and that is admoni. And that's found in Strong's number 132. And this word is used to describe David as ruddy in 1 Samuel chapters 16 and 17. But that's not the only word that's translated ruddy, because often Adam, Strong's number 122, is rosy or ruddy by itself. In chapter 5 of the Song of Solomon, his wife is portrayed as describing Solomon himself, and 
I'm going to read part of it from verse 10, but I'm going to add some comments where I read. And verse 10, she says, my beloved is white and ruddy. And that is Strong's number 122, Adam, used as an adjective. The chiefest among 10,000. His head is as the most fine gold. Now, that would describe a head that was suntanned because men were, um, that it, it was a, an agrarian kingdom and men were out in the sun quite often so, so that his head and neck would have a suntan. And there's some unfortunate language in the King James Version here where it says his locks are bushy but the meaning of the word for bushy actually refers to a cluster of dates. And in this context, is better interpreted as wavy. His locks are wavy and black as a raven. And Solomon had black hair, as did other Aryans. Hector of Troy was described in the Iliad as having raven hair by Homer. His eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of waters, washed with milk and fitly set. His cheeks are as a bed of spices, as sweet flowers, and that reinforces our concept of ruddy. His lips like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. His hands are as gold rings set with the beryl, and that means that they are suntanned, with blue veins showing through. His belly is as bright ivory, overlaid with sapphires, and sapphires are blue. And that ivory overlaid with sapphires, which is white, showing blue veins through the skin. His legs are as pillars of marble, set upon sockets of fine gold. And once again, if you look at marble, white legs with veins showing through, which are set upon suntanned feet, sockets of fine gold, because his feet must have been suntanned. His countenance is as Lebanon, excellent as the cedars. So there we have a description of a white man that could never fit any man of any other race. That sounds like a farmer's tan, that his body's white, but the face, uh, arms, you know, hands and feet have got a tan, right? Absolutely. That's exactly what it describes. But his legs and his belly are still white, and you can see the blue veins through them. The concept of being ruddy is a white construct. And so is the concept of a fair complexion, which is very white and pale. Other races do not have these qualities. But this white quality is expressed throughout the Bible. The concept of being swarthy or black or blue, either emotionally or spiritually, are also white constructs which the other races do not have. And they are also expressed throughout the Bible. 
However, we cannot think to imagine that such descriptions refer to skin color where an interpretation forces one passage to conflict with other passages in the same books. So, I'll give a couple of examples. Near the beginning of the first chapter of the Song of Solomon, that we just read from chapter 5, right? Now we're going to go back to chapter 1. And we read in words attributed to Solomon himself. I am black, but comely. And this again is unfortunate language, the way it turned out, the way that the English language and our society have evolved, right? If you wrote in... 1611 that somebody somebody's hair was bushy you would not understand that to be talking about a negro if you wrote in 1611 that someone was black unless you mentioned skin specifically you would not immediately interpret that to describe a negro Solomon said, I am black but comely, O ye daughters of Jerusalem, as the tents of Kedar, as the curtains of Solomon. Now, a lot of people might stop reading right there, imagining that one verse alone to be a proof that somehow Solomon was a nigger. But in the very next verse, we see that he declared for himself to be black or as it should have been interpreted or translated as swarthy only because he was tanned by the sun. And there's more to this than that, right? So we're going to continue with verse six. Look not upon me because I am black. Why is he black? Because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's children were angry with me. In other words, his brothers and sisters. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. Now we see he describes himself as being tanned by the sun because he was made to go outside and keep vineyards. But what is more important is that he felt that it was a reproach to him to be swarthy. And he was embarrassed by the reproach. And for that reason, he didn't even want the women to look at him. So it is obvious that not only was Solomon actually white, as we see clearly described later in the book, and he was only black because he was tanned, as we see him described here, but it was also a disgrace to be a nigger. It's very clear right there in a the text. It was a disgrace to be swarthy. It was a disgrace to be black. The fools who imagined that Solomon was black because of only one short statement in verse 5, they should all be disgraced. Because to Solomon, it was a disgrace to be a nigger. He didn't even want the women to look at him. Yeah, and that's what they always do. They hone in on one verse and cut everything off around it and just say, I am black, and that's it. And then they just repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, and say, see, Solomon was black. If they read the next verse, they should realize that they themselves 
are disgraced and they should turn around, crawl into a hole and die. That's what they should do <laughs> because it's a disgrace to Solomon to be a nigger. I don't know how else to word that. <laughs> yeah. And um, even his father, um, David, he was described as uh, ruddy as well by Samuel, right? He, he said the ruddy youth approached him and it was even associated with good health, with looking healthy, having this, um, you know, redness on your face, a good circulation, a good healthy look, a vibrant look. Well, well Absolutely. If you were pale, I think there's a word for that. Peaked, is it? That that might mean um, flushed is another one. If you were flushed, that, that means that you were too pale and people would ask you if you're okay. Are you okay? Yeah, are you going to throw up? Are you going to pass out? Are you feeling dizzy? Are you okay? You, you look very pale. So, so that was a sign of being ill to be too pale, but that's only in reference to people who were described as being ruddy when they were healthy. Yeah. And, and also, um, just briefly, any other type of colors is that generally means that you're seriously ill, right? Um, if you have a complete kidney failure or liver, you can get this yellow tint but that probably means you're going to drop dead within a day or so, right? I mean, if you think about it, um, your urine goes yellow, and if it's not being flushed out your system and it's in your blood, well, then then you can get this horrendously sick uh, look. And I've seen it. I've seen people who have uh, complete kidney failure and, and have this slight yellow tint, and you think, oh, my God, is he going to drop dead? You, you know what I mean? Have you seen that yourself? Well, well right. It's a sign of... Um... Kidney problems, right? It, it, or, or liver problems, I believe. It's, it's a sign of um, cirrhosis of the liver to be yellow. Yeah. And, and but to right, a chink, that's normal. Yeah, right. To an oriental, right. To a chink, to a, an, any um, yellow monkey, Asian. That's absolutely normal. And you could never describe a Chinaman as being yellow because they're all yellow, right? They all have that look. So they must all have cirrhosis of the liver. Um, <laughs> you, you can't describe a Negro as being peaked. And, and this is Merriam-Webster's dictionary. It's peaked, P-E-A-K-E-D. And, and it's pronounced peaked, but it's really peaked, right? It, it's an adjective. It's from the 14th century. It, it means to be, um, to, to be pale and wan, W-A-N, or emaciated, right? E emaciated, to be sickly. And, you, you know, you can't call a Negro pale when they're, when they're sick. I, I mean, <laughs> how does black same, become pale? Black. So, so we've had the, all of these words are, are constructs of white language in the in in the framework of a white society which whites developed to describe themselves and the fact that we find equivalence of all these terms in scripture that alone proves beyond doubt that these were white people that that were being described
Yeah, and there's even um, certain surnames where they would have the black, which just means, or you know, the the clan or tribe of the black, which means they all had that raven hair, or the brown eyes, or the black. It doesn't mean that there were niggers there, but it, you can only use that in a white society to describe different tribes. Well, well, right, absolutely, and and there's other uses of black and and blue as adjectives for mourning or for being sad, or for being stained with some sin. You could be black. And, and we're about to see that. Another example is in Lamentations, Jeremiah's book of Lamentations. And it's a lamentation over Jerusalem, because Jerusalem had just been destroyed by the Babylonians. And, and in verse 7, Jeremiah says of Jerusalem that, her Nazarites were purer than snow. They were whiter than milk. Now, you might take that to um, refer to their behavior, that they were unsoiled by sin. But in the next statement, you can't, because it says, they were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. And, and once again, sapphire is blue, and ruddy refers to the, the ability to see the blood through the skin. And sapphire is bright blue. And that, that um, the blue undertones in the skin, which a man that stays indoors all the time, who doesn't um, really develop a good tan, will, um, you'll be able to see the blue veins right through his hands through his neck, if he's in decent physical condition, right? You'll see the blue veins through his neck, through his chest, th through his hands, through the undersides of his arms, all throughout his legs, you'll see these blue veins. So, so it, it's the same thing with ruddiness, right? That the blood in, in the skin makes you ruddy. So if you're in good health, that's what we may not all appear that way because we're all different levels of physical condition, but the um, the ideal is expressed by those concepts. But then lamenting them, he says, their visage is blacker than a coal. They are not known in the streets. Their skin cleaves to their bones. It is withered. It has become like a stick. The Nazarites were not black-skinned, but only black as a metaphor, in appearance, because of the suffering they went through when Jerusalem was destroyed, and because of the poor estate to which they sunk as a result of that. The text clearly states that they were white-skinned, whiter than milk, and ruddy in body before they were shamed in their defeat by the Babylonians. And there's another popular one, which is in Job, where there's the verse, my skin is black upon me, and my bones are burned with heat. And uh, Job went through a whole plague, didn't he, where he was uh, covered in boils and disease. And after that, only then does he describe himself as being black. So this is in the worst possible uh, health condition. Only then would he describe that color, which well, shows you he's not a Negro, he's a white a white man who's been withered away by disease, right? Well, well, not only disease, but he lost his house. He had no home. He lost everything. He sat in in um 
sackcloth and ashes, mourning the loss of his home, his wife, his children, all of his possessions were all gone. So he's stuck outside, sitting in, in the heat, and he says, my skin is black upon me. He probably got a good suntan during that period, and my bones are burned with heat, infers that the skin being black is because he, he grew very tan sitting in the heat. He was swarthy. He wasn't literally black, but he was swarthy. His skin darkened in the heat. And also with his mourning. My harp is also turned to mourning. And, and that is, speaking of a white person, that, that we would describe him as being black. That doesn't mean he was a Negro. Why would he say, if he was a Negro writing for Negroes in a Negro society, why would he say that he's black? They're all black. You would never say, oh, I'm black. Oh, I'm black. Why? We're all black. If everybody was black, why would you even say you were black? <laughs> you would never say, oh, I'm black. And every nigger in the area looks and says, what makes you special? We're all black. What, why would you say that? It's the, the way that literature is interpreted by niggers today is just ridiculous. The worst thing we ever did was teach a Negro how to read. Because with well, a 75 sure or 80 IQ. go around to them and point these verses out to them. They have to teach them and show it to them, right? I, I doubt a Negro came up with all this. Yeah, yeah, right. Well, we're convinced that Jews started that whole thing about trying to convince people that Israelites were black, because that would be another way to elevate the Negro above the white man in the white man's own society. And and yet, you know, we have a lot of um, 75 and 70 IQ Negroes running around repeating these things. And then we have a lot of 90 IQ whites that believe them and never actually read the book or don't know anything about um, white society and literature for themselves because they're not taught in schools. If you were properly taught in schools and, and if you properly read English literature from the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries in schools, you would never fall for this stupidity. It was taken for granted for 2,000 years that these Israelites were white. Maybe for 1,800 years that these Israelites were white. Now, all of a sudden, it's being questioned. Now... Today, people are being convinced that for 2,000 years, their ancestors have been worshiping a nigger or some kind of um, sand flea, some, some kind of um, goat fucker, street shitter. Are you kidding me? I'm sorry I'm fouling up the program with the language, but I, I don't know how else to express this. I mean, sure, there are academic ways to do it, but they just don't get the point across. I have to drive the point home. <laughs> well, yeah, like um, so some nigger came into Europe, spread Christianity, and then they said, okay, we like this, but we're going to pretend it was a white man and just adopt this foreign religion. It, it's absolutely crazy. That wasn't the point at all. <sighs> okay. 
if we understand our own literature and our own society, we will never be tricked by this Jewish sophistry that these people were brown or black. Why would you stand in the public assembly and declare yourself to be black if everybody was black? It's ridiculous. It makes no sense whatsoever. Wow. Only a fool would fall for that. Only a fool would would, would um, read Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 5 and imagine that to be referring to the color of his skin and the natural color of his skin if all the people of that nation had the same skin color. It's ridiculous. It's pointless. <laughs> okay. I don't know if we've elaborated on this topic <laughs> as much as we could or should. I, I, I think we should. From here, we should discuss the fact that since Adam was white and Noah's white, that, that Shem, Ham, and Japheth must also have been white. But first, I want to read an apocryphal description of Noah found in the Genesis Apocryphon of the Dead Sea Scrolls and also in the Book of Noah found in the Ethiopic Enoch. And this is from what is termed um, Chapter 6 of the so-called Book of Noah, which is a portion of the Enoch literature. It's a small portion, actually. And I'm only going to read a few lines. And I'm looking for something at Christiane here at the same time, so you'll have to excuse me. From the Genesis Apocryphon, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is from the Book of Noah as it was found in the Ethiopic Enoch literature. And after some days, my son Methuselah, took a wife for his son Lamech, and she became pregnant by him and bore a son. And his body was as white as snow and as red as the blooming of a rose. And the hair of his head and his long locks were as white as wool, not textured like wool, but as white as wool. And his eyes beautiful. So in this book, Noah was described as being so white that even his parents were astounded. Now, of course, we do not think that this work is original to the time of Noah or that it is to be considered as scripture. But what it does reflect is how the authors of the work had interpreted Genesis chapter 6, where it says that Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. That's how they interpreted it, to draw that picture of Noah. So in their perspective, the ideal or perfect white baby would have a body as white as snow and as red or ruddy as the blooming of a rose and the hair of his head would be as white as wool. In 
in English, we have, I don't know if you have the, um, the same exact slang over there, but in English, we have children here in America, and there are plenty of them who were born to relatively blonde parents. And when they're born, their hair is so blonde that it's white. And we yeah, call yeah, them my, toeheads. Um, my little brother had that color hair. It was so so blonde, it was white. When I look at pictures, I'm astounded how, you know, it's almost like snow color. Right. But then over the years, it slowly darkens. But yeah, you get that when babies are born, they have that hair. My own brother had it too. And, and um, he was extremely blonde as a baby. But now his hair is like a dark yellow. But it's still not brown. Where my hair is brown. So we call those children toeheads. They're so blonde. Their eyebrows are white that their hair is almost white. It's so blonde. And we have a lot of those here in America that, that are born to, um, well, well, Northwest European parents. So they're toeheads. So Noah was a toehead with a ruddy body. And that, um, sorry. And that generations, it should be said, in his descent, in his race, right? that he was perfect in, that he was all white, his parents were white, all the way back to Adam. No mixing with giants, uh, you know, Kenites, Jews, nothing, just pure white. And he was perfect for that reason. Absolutely. And, and that word is um, door, I believe, where it says Noah was perfect in his generations i'm going to look it up there's two words there's door and there's tolada and these are the generations of noah that's tolada or descent and he was perfect in his generations that's the word door and and it can refer to a um to to a generation it, it's the word from which we get the english word duration but that word comes indirectly through a Latin word, a verb, dorare, and, and they're all from this Hebrew word, dor, which is an abiding, a, a generation in the sense of an abiding or a period, a habitation. So if, if you leave great-great-grandchildren, that they would be the dor or the abiding of you. So Noah was the door or the abiding of Adam, and he was a perfect abiding of Adam, which is why God saved him out of the flood, him and his family, right? Because he was um, perfect in his abiding. He was a truly Adamic man, as opposed to the people around him who had been race mixing with the fallen angels, that's what Genesis chapter 6 describes. The giants and the, the Nephilim, the fallen ones. So, this um, Genesis Apocryphon and, and this Enoch literature, that this is, um, while I do believe there was authentic Enoch literature surviving at the time of the apostles, it cannot be determined that this was part of that. It really can't because the Dead Sea Scrolls, it, the Book of Noah fragments found in the Dead Sea Scrolls and in the Genesis Apocryphon 
are, are very fragmented, and this particular passage is not found among them. So in the Ethiopic Enoch, which survived um, evidently through the early Christian church and Judeans who had been in Ethiopia at an early time, and the Ethiopians, who were originally white, had preserved this all down through the centuries to the more modern, mongrel, black Ethiopians. So, so they continued to make copies of these books and preserve them. Well, well there's a lot of innovations in the Ethiopian Enoch and, and a lot of added material and corruptions for which reason I don't trust it to a great degree. And I, I prefer to stick with the Enoch literature of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I believe is much more faithfully preserved, but it's highly fragmented. But nevertheless, this reflects what um, scribes of the time of the time relative to Christ, because this was preserved by marginally Christian people, right? So, so this shows what they thought about what a child perfect in his generations should look like. And when we look at the um, mosaics of the time, and there are all sorts of surviving mosaics that can be found right on the internet, um, they were discovered in Sephoris and in Hukok, H-U-Q-Q-O-Q, it's spelled. It, it's um, that these are cities in modern Syria. And these mosaics are from synagogues or churches, one or the other, from, from dating from before the 4th century A.D., possibly back to the second century AD. And, and these mosaics, which are called the Mona Lisa of Galilee, or, or which describe the binding of Isaac. And there's a third mosaic, which describes, it, it is said to, it's interpreted to describe the meeting of Hebrew priests with Alexander the Great, which occurred about 330 BC. And that's one interpretation, although there are other plausible interpretations. Um, some interpretations put the depiction in the mosaic to be as late as the time of the Maccabees and their war against the Seleucid Greeks, right? But if you look at these mosaics, and these mosaics were created by Judean or Hebrew people, Israelites, from the second and third centuries AD, and or, or perhaps a little later. And they represent events that happened a few hundred years before their own time, or a few thousand in the case of the Binding of Isaac, almost 2,000. Well, these people are absolutely white European-looking people in these mosaics that were found in synagogues and made by 
Israelites, or some people would say Jews, which isn't quite right. So why would these um, 2nd, 3rd, 4th century AD Judeans, if, if the Israelites were black, why would they be depicting themselves as being absolutely white? How could that be? Yeah, Why it doesn't make do sense. That? That, makes that, no it sense never entered their mind that um, these people were black or, you know, the, pe the people who they were drawing were Negroes. So in their descriptions of ancient people, and, and these are Israelites and Judeans from around the time of Christ and before the fall of Rome for the first couple of hundred years of, of early Christianity, in their descriptions of themselves and their patriarchs, they were all absolutely white in both art and literature. If Noah was white, if Adam was white, if they were white and ruddy, if David was white, if Solomon was white and ruddy, and, and clearly described as a white man, unmistakably, in Song of Solomon chapter 5, then all of these Genesis 10 races and nations had to be white. And we do know more than enough of their early history from their own inscriptions and descriptions of themselves and, and archaeological discoveries that have been found that they certainly were white. And you don't find one originally black nation amongst these Genesis 10 nations. And, and we don't have to know them all. We only have to be able to identify absolutely white nations amongst Japhethites, Hamites, and, and Shemites to understand that all these people were white. And, and the little bit that we know about very ancient history, it's absolutely apparent they are all white. If you look at the Japhethites, the um, people of Madai, they are the Medes. They can be identified with modern Slavs or Sarmatians, but they are the nation of the Medes. And that's very clear in ancient history and throughout the Old Testament because they are very often mentioned that wherever we see Madai in the Old Testament scriptures, those same people are also described in inscriptions and by Greek historians as the Medes. The Medes, according to Herodotus, were the people who were originally called Arians. And Herodotus wrote that explicitly in 450 BC, that the Medes were originally the people who were originally called Arians. So, Javan, the next identifiably white Jephethi tribe in Genesis chapter 10, wherever in the Bible or in ancient Persian inscriptions, you see the word Yavana, as it is in the original Hebrew and in Persian, in Aramaic, 
the Ionian Greeks are the people that are being described. And that is also the connection made in the Septuagint. In the Septuagint version of Genesis, which was written in the early third century BC, the same identification is made. And Yavana, the Ionian Greeks, meet the fully fit the descriptions of Yavana throughout the Old Testament. So Javan are the Ionian Greeks. And the identification is absolutely 100% certain. Tarshish is the place to which Solomon sent his ships. And Herodotus wrote of Tartessus. Now Tarshish is commonly identified with Tartessus. And Herodotus described Tartessus in a part of what is now southeastern Spain, bordering on the Mediterranean, Tartessus was a famous trading town, according to Herodotus, even before the Trojan War, which would be before 1200 BC. So Solomon, who's living and, and ruling over Israel sometime from about 1000 down to 950 BC, sometime in there, why wouldn't he send ships across the Mediterranean to southeastern Spain to trade with the people of Tarshish or Tartessus. And after so long a time, it became known as Iberia, after a Hebrew word, Iber, which means to cross over. Why wouldn't he send his ships there? And all of the archaeology and all of the literature from, that can be gleaned we can understand that the Iberian Peninsula was always white until the Islamic invasions changed the face of the Iberians. So even just with that, knowing that the Japhethites were white, if Noah was perfect in his descent, then, then even just based on that, we could determine that Ham and Shem must also have been white, that all of them been, would have been white, right? Absolutely. This is the only logical way. Sorry. Absolutely. No, you're absolutely right. If we get one white nation and Noah was perfect in his descent, from where have we ever seen a race of black people born of a race of white people? How could that happen? Because God can do anything. So God's playing tricks on us and, and kind after kind. He, he really didn't stress that 10 or 12 times in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, that everything must be kind after kind, everything after its kind as he created it. There's a couple more here. I, I mean, they can actually just about all be identified in ancient history and, and, um, and archaeology. Um, Kittim has always been identified with Cyprus before the Phoenicians. Dodanum in Genesis chapter 10, there was a lot of confusion throughout the Old Testament with scribes between the Dalit and the Resh, the R, in the, um, after the Hebrew alphabet changed to the block type characters that we see today. They're not the original Hebrew characters, but the Vav and, and the Resh were often confused, and the Resh and the Dalit 
were often confused by scribes. There's several places that are absolutely identifiable where that happened in the Old Testament over time. And the dodanum in the Septuagint are the rhodioi. That it should be rhodanum, which are the, the Greeks of Rhodes, the Isle of Rhodes. And Tubal and, and Meshech, they're mentioned by Herodotus as the Tabani and Maski, and they lived up around the Black Sea, but were ultimately driven north by, by the other tribes in the Scythians into um, southeastern Europe and, and central Europe, and they could be identified with the later tribes of the Maski, and, and which gives us Moscow, right? And Tyrus... Tyrus represents, and, and in Hebrew, it's Thyrus, and, and they are the Thracians who were known in the earliest times to the Greeks and the Romans and the other tribes, and, and they dwelt in um, modern-day Bulgaria for the most part. We would identify the land as Bulgaria today. So all these people are identifiable, and they're all identifiable in history and, and in archaeology. This is not a, a secret. It's just that most white people simply don't study ancient history to make these realizations. So, so the sons of Ham, um, Cush, was actually the Hebrew name for the what, what we could consider to be the first or early Babylonian empire which the Greek writers called the Ethiopia of the East because they also identified Ethiopia as a colony, Ethiopia in Africa as a colony from Mesopotamia. And that was by sea that the Ethiopians of the East or the Kush of the East had um, migrated by sea just by crossing the, the Gulf and inhabiting the Horn of Africa on, on the east. So that's how Ethiopia was founded, south of Egypt, was by sea from Mesopotamia. So the Greeks identified two Ethiopias, the Ethiopia south of Egypt and the Ethiopia of the east. In the earliest writings, Memnon, the Ethiopian, and this is in Homer's Iliad, had joined the forces um, that were in allegiance to the Trojans, that were allied with the Trojans against the invasion of the Greeks. And Memnon the Ethiopian was credited as building Susa, which later became the capital of the Persian Empire, the city Susa. And, and these people, that they are unquestionably white in history and in archaeology. Yeah, so you can see all these ancient civilizations, they existed in the Greek classics. And then over time, they were gradually replaced by Israelites. And then people just assume, oh, the Hamites must be talking about the Negroes, that, you know, the niggers, when, when that's just ludicrous. They either got conquered by the Israelites, like in Europe, all those Japhethite nations you mentioned, or they race mixed into oblivion. They destroyed themselves. And that's the fate of all non, all the other white Adamic nations. Absolutely. I, I mean, when you look at the story of Moses, Moses went to the land of Cush. He went to 
it's translated wherever you see Cush in, in the Old Testament, wherever you see the word Ethiopia, it's translated from Cush. Um, that, that's also an unfortunate way that language in the Old Testament became confused because if you don't study the classics, you'll never realize that there were two Cushes. And if you don't study, um, if you don't study ancient history and archaeology, you'll never make this realization. If you're just a King James-only Bible student, you'll be lost forever. Moses did not go south of Egypt into Ethiopia to find his wife. The Bible pulls that apart. It, it, proves, it disproves that idea so quickly, simply by understanding that Moses went to the land of Cush to find a wife, and he ended up getting a wife of the tribe of Midian. And the Midianites descended from Abraham and his wife Keturah, and they dwelt in the land that was east of the Jordan River from ancient Palestine. And that's very clear all throughout the early books of the Bible. So Moses went to what we would call today Arabia to find a wife. That's where he found his wife, in modern Jordan. That's where he was. That's where he found his wife. That's where the Midianites dwelt. That's where Moses fled to. And it was under control of that Babylonian empire at the time that Moses fled there. So it was called the land of Cush. That's why it was called the land of Cush. Just like Ethiopia to the south of Egypt was called Cush by the Hebrews because people from Mesopotamia who were of Cush founded that colony to the south of Egypt. If you look at the scriptures and the history of the scriptures, many Hamites actually continued to dwell in um, Mesopotamia and the northern parts of what we would identify today as Syria or the, the far eastern extremities of what we would identify today as Turkey, what, which bordered on, which borders on modern Syria, right? The, the capital of the Hittites was Carchemish, which is in that very region, in the area between Turkey and Syria. I think it would be on the Turkey side today. And, and it can be identified today by modern names. So Carchemish, what was the capital city of the Hittites, and, and the Hittites were from Ham, even though they were from Ham through Canaan and bore the curse of Canaan, right? They were from Ham. So not all the Hamites went to Africa, that even though Mitzrayim went to um, what we identify as the African continent today, went to Egypt, and Egypt is Mitzrayim throughout the Old Testament. But in archaeology, the early Egyptians were absolutely white, and they drew themselves as being white, but tanned. They were always tanned. Well, they were in the sun all the time. What would you expect? Yeah. But but if you look at the pictures, you'll notice that the women are very pale because they didn't work outside. They were inside protected and covered up. And that's why you have these kind of golden skin tanned men with white, absolutely white women, like pale white women almost. 
Absolutely. And, and that, that, that um, was the same way that the Greeks depicted their men and women. The men were always tanned, so they were always darker, and depicted as being tanned. The women were be pictured as being absolutely white. If you look under the ham in Genesis chapter 10, you'll find Nimrod, the account of Nimrod. And, and Nimrod founded that first Babylonian empire because it says that Cush begot Nimrod. This is the land of Cush, right? Nimrod was the son of Cush. So why wouldn't his land be called the land of Cush? Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, the Babylonian empire, right? And Erech and Akkad and Kauna in the land of Shinar. And Shinar was later known as Babylonia or Chaldea. But the Chaldeans were not Hamites. They were an invading wave of Shemites from northern Syria who took over Babylon. And they ultimately created the Neo-Babylonian Empire, which is the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So they were Chaldeans. They weren't Cushites. Yeah, and so, that's, that's how Moses could look like an Egyptian because the Egyptians were white. It, it's astonishing how um, the Negroes <laughs> seem to have claimed that Egyptians were niggers. They were black. And that because of that, Moses must have been one as well. That's completely on its face. Right. It turns history, it turns ancient history upside down. It, it's... Um, it, it's a purposeful theft of ancient white history. And the Jews, modern Jews, promote that because they seek to elevate the Negro in modern white society to a status that they don't deserve, they never earned, and they shouldn't have. As I often say, they shouldn't even be considered as people. And when the American Constitution was written, they weren't people. Going on, what we, what we really should continue down this list, at, yep. at least because we haven't yet discussed any Shemites, so we'll move on to them. The children of Shem, Elam. Wherever you see Elam, in the Old Testament, wherever you see the word Persia or Persians, it comes from this word Elam. And if you look at ancient history, the Greeks identified Elamais, they called it, as the original seat of the Persians. And Elamais was exactly opposite the Tigris River from ancient Babylon. And the Persians actually fought over Babylon in early times with the Cushites and the Chaldeans. So various tribes sought to control the entrances to the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, that their confluence was near Babylon. And if you could control ancient Babylon, you can control the mercantile traffic coming in and out of all of Mesopotamia by water into the sea and 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 route to um, the east coast of Africa and Asia and wherever else your boats could take you. 
and and you could control a great amount of wealth that way in the ancient world. So Babylonia was actually fought over many times in ancient history, um, that region. So Elam of the Persians and the Greeks described the Persians as being absolutely white. In fact, astonishing, astonishing, astonishingly white, according to Xenophon, because they always wore their clothes. They never got tanned. Where the Greeks, yeah, were, they thought they were they dressed like women, and that this would be an easy fight because they're all dressed, uh, you know, right. in long dresses. Exactly. So, Asher. And Asher, it is the ancestor of the Assyrians and the Assyrian Empire in Mesopotamia. And there's something that we have to understand about early Greek legends and myths. And the Greeks in many ways admit this themselves. All their earliest legends and myths came from the East, came from the... the um, Syrians, the Assyrians, from the Babylonians, all of the earliest Greek myths and legends can be traced either to the Hebrew scriptures or to the myths and legends of Mesopotamia and northern Syria. All of them. Greeks, the Greeks did not invent their own culture. The Greek culture is a a transplantation and an extension of Israelite and Mesopotamian culture. Eber, of course, is a Shemite from which come the Israelites. Lud, in Genesis chapter 10, describes the Lydians of Anatolia. And that this, that this is identifiable in both secular and biblical sources. The Lydians are called Lud, and according to the Greeks, the Etruscans of northern Italy came from a colony of the Lydians. Aram was a Shemite, and Aram are the Syrians, and the Greeks derived a lot of their, um, and, and tied a lot of their myths to ancient Syria and the Syrians. Wherever you see Syria in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew word is Aram. I believe that that's probably identification enough of several Shemitic nations, several Japhethite nations, and several Hamitic nations, which are clearly white in history. In fact, the Hittite language is described as Indo-European by modern linguists. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I would describe it in different ways. But these people were all clearly and perceptibly white. And ancient history and our myths, our legends, and our archaeology prove that beyond doubt. Right. And um, just after the Noah verse in, in the Bible, uh, just off the top of my head, it says, this is the book of the race of Adam kind. And when you realize that Adam was ruddy, and as you just explained, all these races that came from Adam were ruddy, white and ruddy. So it all adds up. It all makes sense. Only race mixing changed their appearance or their descendants got darker and browner. Well, well right. That, that verse actually comes from the top of Genesis chapter 5 and starts with Adam giving birth to Seth. Um, um, 
child after his own image and his own likeness. And the story of the first race-mixing account in Genesis chapter 6, well, Noah was preserved because he was a perfect descendant of Adam. Noah and his three sons and their wives, and, and Noah's wife were preserved for that reason. It's very explicit because the other Adamites of the time had for a long time been mixing, race mixing, with the Nephilim. Nephilim meaning fallen ones. It's translated as giants. There were Nephilim in the earth in those days and after. Their Nephilim did not come from Adam. The Nephilim came from the fall of the angels that preceded Adam. And for that reason, God punished the entire race and destroyed it in a flood, preserving Noah and his sons. Now, other races continued to survive outside of the area of the flood. And scripture shows that right in Genesis chapters 14 and 15, where, where you had the roving creatures and, and the Rephaim and the Nephilim and, and, and other people who did not descend from Noah are all listed. Proves right there that the flood was not global. It didn't destroy every person and animal on the earth, on the, on the globe or the planet or, or whatever you want to call it. It only destroyed all of the people that were in that land. And the same word is translated as land a thousand times in the Bible. That's translated as earth in Genesis chapters 6 through 10, 6 through 9. So there's a lot of confusion, but it can all be yeah, and then, cleared up, and it can be cleared up from the plain meanings of words in Scripture and from recorded history and archaeology. It shouldn't be confusion when, at all. Sorry, sorry. I'm sorry. It shouldn't be confusion at all. All of these things that I'm saying should be taught in our schools, and they're not. The schools are teaching, filling our heads with bullshit and that the um, agenda of the empire rather than teaching truth. And the churches are following along because the churches are also agencies of the empire. And it I'm should sorry. also be taught that uh, all these lost tribes, you know, dispersed Israelites would have followed the same pattern as the other Adamic races had Christ not come spread his gospel and that gave us, you know, that thousand years of Christianity where we rose uh, because we separated from the other races and kept his laws. That's the whole point, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And Abraham was called out of the other white nations of Genesis chapter 10. And Paul of Tarsus explains in Acts chapter 17, I believe, that Yahweh God allowed every race of man to go his own way to see if they would seek him. And it's clear that they didn't. So they all went off into race mixing and, and ended up destroyed. By the time of Christ, there is only um, a few remnants of the other Genesis 10 Adamic nations remaining that were not polluted. That there were still some Ionian Greeks, there were still some Thracians, that there were still in some of the um, Slavic tribes of the East that descended from the 
primarily or mostly from the Japethites. So there's a prophecy that Japheth will dwell in the in the tents of Shem, and that's how that was fulfilled. That there are, that there are people descended from Japheth in Europe today, or at least partly descended from Japheth after all these centuries of cohabitation with with the white tribes descended from Shem. So the the scriptures are fulfilled, but the the nations descended from the children of Israel did, according to Isaiah, did fill the face of the earth with fruit and became the dominant nations of the white world before the time of Christ. And they still are today, of course. They have been ever since. The other ones all having been um, marginalized. All right. Should we move on to the next point? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, so it's uh, Christ only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel and nobody else. Um, there's a few verses where he says that, and, you know, often they were just pushed to the side, and it's always taught that Christ came for everybody, that he came to save everybody for every, well, what we would call modern, in the modern uh you know, words we would say every man, every person, basically including the other races. But as we've explained in history, uh, Israel wasn't lost. They were in Europe. And that's why the apostles spread the gospel to Europe. They they obeyed Yahweh's or sorry, Christ's commands to only go to the house of Israel. Right. Well, well right. And, and to understand that you have to start with the prophets. You have to start with the prophets because the prophets prophecy that the that the most of the prophets that survive in the Bible right are from the period that that are discernible as prophets are from the period when the children of Israel were about to first be brought into captivity, and that would be Isaiah. Hosea, Micah, and Amos. Those four prophets are the, um, they're not the earliest. The earliest Old Testament prophet of the books of the prophets, which are the, um, I believe, 18 books of the Bible, 14 minor prophets and the four major ones, Isaiah, Daniel, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Okay, I'm sorry, there's 12 minor prophets. So there's 16 books of the prophets in the Bible. Jonah is the earliest. And Jonah was told to go to Nineveh and preach to the Ninevites to, to repent. And that this symbolic meaning in that, there would be too much of a digression here to get into. But Jonah did it. And that's because the Ninevites hadn't yet started to invade the lands controlled by the children of Israel at that time. But that was their purpose, that they were going to invade those lands. And that's part of the message in the book of Jonah. So he is the earliest of those 16 prophets that we have as books of the prophets in the Bible. Now, the next prophets are... Um, 
the four that I just mentioned, Isaiah, Hosea, Micah, and Amos. And they were all contemporary. And they were writing as the Assyrians were on the verge or had already begun to invade the lands of Israel. And all of the Israelites were told that they were being punished for their sins and taken into captivity. And that's the message in all four of those prophets. And they all wrote from, from slightly different perspectives. Some of them wrote, Isaiah wrote for a very long period of time. He probably started writing around 740 BC all the way through to um, after the time of Hezekiah and, and the failed siege of Jerusalem in 698, 699, 700 BC. So Isaiah wrote for a long time. And all of these books, books of the prophets are focused. Later, it's Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel, and they're focused on what's happening to the remnant of Judah at Jerusalem, right? So they focus on that. But the focus of all these prophets is the punishment coming upon the children of Israel and Judah, who would be all taken off into captivity in their punishment for their sins. Now, the same prophets that spoke about this punishment also spoke about a future reconciliation when Yahweh God would save them and deliver them from all the places they were sent captive and they would follow him because he would send them a savior. And it's the, the most prolific of all of the salvation prophecies in the book of the prophets is the final 25 chapters of Isaiah. And the Jews absolutely hate the final 25 chapters of Isaiah because they alone prove that the Jews can't possibly be Israel or Judah. They alone show that the focus of Yahweh God is on his people in who are already in captivity by the time of the 7th century BC. And to them are all the promises of salvation in a Messiah, all throughout those 25 chapters of Isaiah. So the Jews and their influence upon modern biblical scholarship have insisted that Isaiah really didn't write that, that that was written much later by somebody else and stuck at the end of Isaiah. And the truth is that Isaiah really did write that because Jesus Christ quoted from it and he told us that Isaiah wrote it. <laughs> so the Jews are liars. They're liars every time. Aside from Isaiah, we have the prophecy of Daniel, which promises a Messiah explicitly for explicit reasons that only relate to the ancient Israelites. And Daniel goes on to describe kingdoms that would arise out of the ancient Israelites, the people of God. And he gives a list of a he gives a prophecy, which is basically a listing of a succession of empires from the time of Nebuchadnezzar. And 
Those four empires have a definite end, which is also prophesied by Daniel. And when we see that end, we see that the kingdom is delivered to the saints of the Most High. And where we see it in history, it was fulfilled when the German tribes destroyed the Roman Empire. And from that time on, it's the Germanic tribes which have dominated world history, as Daniel said they would. In spite of the fact that many of the Greeks were Israelites, many of the Romans were Israelites, many of the um, older tribes of the Celt-Iberians were Israelites, in spite of that, those Germanic tribes would come to dominate world history. They were the people taken off into Assyrian captivity. And that, that's played out. It's prophesied in Daniel. It's prophesied in Isaiah. And it's played out in history. Now, that doesn't discount all of the other Israelites who didn't come out of the Assyrian captivity. It doesn't discount them or disqualify them in any way, or diminish them in any way. But those Germanic tribes were to dominate society that came out of that Assyrian captivity. And it was Paul. It was about them that Paul had said in Galatians, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So, according to Isaiah and according to Daniel, those tribes would dominate the world, and they did. Jeremiah. Let's go to Jeremiah. And in Ezekiel, there's promises of a new covenant that are mentioned as a covenant, right? But in Jeremiah, the promise of a new covenant is explicit. It's explicitly called a new covenant. In Ezekiel, it's just called another covenant. But it refers to the new covenant. So in Ezekiel, that another covenant is to be made with the children of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, it explicitly says a new covenant would be made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So when Christ comes, who is he coming for besides the Israelites taken into captivity, which are talked about for 25 chapters with many messianic prophecies in Isaiah that say that Yahweh is coming to save them, the Israelites who were taken into captivity, and only them, to the saints of the Most High, described by Daniel, to the house of Israel and the house of Judah, mentioned explicitly, prophesied explicitly by Jeremiah in relation to a new covenant. So when we get to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, how do we imagine that he had any other purpose besides that purpose spelled out in the books of the prophets? How do we imagine that? Yeah, and that new covenant was, of course, Christianity. And um, who accepted it? The, the European people, only them. And if the new covenant was for the children of Israel and only uh, Europe had it, then they must be the children of Israel. It's the only way. Uh, unless, you know, Yahweh messed up, or unless he made a mistake, unless he failed. Obviously, he can't fail. And that's the only way you can interpret it. 
But, well, that's the arrogancy of these modern churches that are new, new te- oh, I'm a New Testament only scripture. Or, oh, that's the Old Testament. That was for the Jews. Well, well the Old Testament doesn't say it was for the Jews. And the New Testament doesn't say that it, that the Old Testament was for the Jews. The New Testament quotes the Old Testament in relation to the children of Israel hundreds and hundreds of times. If you read the Epistle of James, it's addressed to the 12 tribes spread abroad. None of them were Jews. Not one. James wasn't writing to Jews. If you look at the Revelation, it's... It's Eurocentric. It, it prophesies things that only happen in Europe. The seven churches of the Revelation are all in Europe, every single one of them, and or what was then considered Europe, which includes Anatolia, or, or what we call today Turkey. We don't consider Turkey as European, because, and this is argued in Europe, right? Because those people aren't European people. Not anymore. I mean, they used to be. But the Turks aren't. So, the seven churches were all in Europe. The 12 tribes are enumerated in Revelation chapter 7. The 12 tribes are the only tribes entering into the city of God in Revelation chapter 21. That's stated so explicitly. So, how can we imagine that these promises were to anybody else but the 12 tribes? except in certain places where the language is purposely misinterpreted so that they could push a Jewish agenda of of universalism onto Christianity. And that's what they've done. Universalism is the Jewish agenda, and modern Bible scholars interpret all of Scripture according to that Jewish agenda in spite of the explicit language in scripture. Christ told his apostles that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Where's anybody else included in that? In Acts chapter 6. And and that's Luke. And and if if you if I could go and take that a step further, that's in Luke chapter 22, right? But if we go to Luke chapter 1, we see the promise of Christ is exactly what Isaiah had said it was. That the Lord God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people, his people that were already his people when he was born, because this is speaking in relation to the birth and coming of the Messiah, who was to be preceded by the birth and coming of of John the Baptist. And and that's also in the prophets. He wasn't named John the Baptist, but he was described. So he has visited, the God of Israel has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. That's where he was raised up, right? That's from where he was raised up. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. So the coming of the Messiah is, as it was spoken in the mouth of his holy prophets, which had been since the world began. 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, and the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. How the hell does anybody else fit into that? And that is the purpose of the coming of Christ as it is described in the New Testament by Luke. <coughs> How do you fit anybody else into that? And then in Luke chapter 22, the apostles are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel and nobody else. It doesn't say that he came to save Israel and Gentiles. It doesn't say that he came to, that the apostles are going to judge Israel and Gentiles. 30 years after the crucifixion. Acts chapter 26 is talking about things that happened in 60 A.D. 28 years after the crucifixion, to be more precise. Paul of Tarsus stood before Herod, and he said, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise our 12 tribes hope to come. He didn't say anything about a promise made to Gentiles. The truth of the matter is that the children of Israel were promised that they were going to become many nations. And in the colonization period of ancient Israel, which occurred from the time of the judges down to the, all the way to the time of the deportations, the Israelites were making colonies overseas. Israelites made colonies among the, the Greeks. They were called Phoenicians. They made colonies in um, Anatolia that they were called Trojans and Malaysians. And they made colonies in North Africa and Iberia. Again, they were called Phoenicians. And, and then the captivities created the Germanic tribes who became many nations in um, Northern and Eastern Europe. So, and, and went all the way to France, right? So, so, these many nations, that's how they became many nations, fulfilling all those prophecies that go all the way back to the books of Genesis. And then Paul says that he's going to these 12 tribes because this hope is for the promises God made to our fathers. This hope is for the 12 tribes. He specifically says that 28 years after the crucifixion of Christ, in Acts chapter 26. How could we imagine that this promise is to any other race of people? How can we do that? Those Gentiles of the New Testament, that word Gentile is really ethnos. It means nation. The Roman, the Latin word gentilis, comes from the word gens, which is a family, but gentilis means properly in Latin, somebody of the same nation. That's what it means. The children of Israel are all of the gentilis of the ancient Israelites. And the Gentiles, that word ethnos in Greek, which gives us ethnicity in English, ethnos is a nation in Greek. And Paul went to the nations 
who had descended from those 12 tribes. That's Christianity. But it was perverted. It was infiltrated and perverted by Jewish Gnostics in the first and second centuries, and it was corrupted into Gnosticism and became a universalist church by the time that it was accepted by the empire. And that's because the empire could not accept anything that wasn't universalist. It's been a tool for the emperors ever since. Christianity was corrupted by the time of the 4th century AD. The church was never right. The church may have done a lot of good at various periods in history, but it was never right. It was never apostolic Christianity at any time. Right, and um, Yahweh uh, is not a poly- you know, only has one wife, and that is the children of Israel. Um, I think there's uh, could be a slight confusion, and that's when Christ originally, you know, was down in the flesh. He originally was instructing the apostles not to go to the Gentiles just yet. And if you understand that because he was still currently married to them, he had divorced them, uh, you know, the Israelites cast off into the dispersions. But once he died and was resurrected, the wife was free from the law. And therefore, he could now send the apostles out to all these dispersed Israelites for reconciliation and that he could remarry them. He, he kind of had a loophole. Uh, a husband couldn't retake a wife. But if he died and was resurrected, which only Yahweh can do, then he can take that old wife back. He can take back his people, remarry them in the Supper of the Lamb, which we all await on his second return, right? Well, well exactly. And, and that's exactly how the scriptures describe it. That's how Isaiah describes it. That's how Jeremiah describes it. That's how Hosea describes it explicitly, that the purpose of the Messiah was to remarry himself to the children of Israel. That's in Hosea chapter 2. And it's absolutely explicit. It cannot be mistaken. The promise of God to remarry himself to the children of Israel who he had put away in divorce. But the law was an obstacle to that because the law prevented a man from retaking a wife the children of Israel collectively being the wife of God, the law prevented a man from retaking a wife who had been found with other husbands. So Yahweh God is using this paradigm to explain to the children of Israel how much he loves them and how much to what lengths he would go in order to keep his law, that they should keep it also. It's an example to us in in a type in our history. And one day we are all going to know this lesson because the apostles already taught this lesson. This isn't a mystery. It's right there in the scriptures in black and white. So Yahweh God, instead of destroying all of the children of Israel, because they were liable to death, having committed fornication and adultery, They were liable to the penalty of death. He decided to die instead so that they could be saved. That's why Christ died. That's why he had to be without sin when he died, so that he could be perfectly blameless, so that he could die 
on behalf of the children of Israel, but being blameless, have the everlasting life that the law promised and take the children of Israel back to himself. Because when he died, he fulfilled the law. And Paul of Tarsus describes this exactly in that same manner in just a few verses at the beginning of Romans chapter 7. It's also evident in the gospel where Christ is called and calls himself the bridegroom. And John the Baptist refers to him as the bridegroom, the bridegroom that has the bride, meaning that the Israelites of Judea began to follow Christ instead of following John the Baptist because he was only the friend of the bridegroom. But the bridegroom had the bride. That's the words of John the Baptist. I think you'll find them in Luke chapter 3, Matthew chapter 3, and perhaps the early chapters of the Gospel of John. So Paul of Tarsus and, and the apostles themselves describe this. We're not making it up. He calls himself the bridegroom in the Revelation several times. And that's the meaning. It all goes back to Hosea chapter 2 and the promise. And it's also evident in Isaiah and Jeremiah. But in Hosea chapter 2, it's explicit that Yahweh would come and remarry his people. But the law can't allow him to do that. The law ended. That law ended. The law was put away when Christ died on behalf of the children of Israel. So the entire body of prophecy and history of the Old Testament proves Christian identity is correct and that Christian identity is the only valid interpretation of Scripture because anything else makes the Word of God into a lie. Yeah, Christianity is absolutely not a universalist religion. It's not the you know modern-day Jew-type Judeo-Christianity where everybody comes together, sings in the churches, it's a way of life for his race, his uh, Israelite people, his bride. That is the only way to interpret it. And, and for this, the, the hour here is getting late, but I really would like to hit on points 9 and 10. And, and maybe we could discuss them a little at the beginning of, of part 4 of this series. But I'd really love to get through these 10 points. Sure. <laughs> I really would. And, and that, that brings us to why... Europe became Christian. That brings us to why originally, which is up until the, the 16th century, only Europe was Christian, period. And if you look at the prophecy in Revelation, for a thousand years, Europe was supposed to be Christian, and it was. That's when that, that was the rule of the Messiah for that thousand years that the, the mainstream churches tried to project that into the future. And that's a lie. It's already happened. And what's going to happen after the thousand years? Satan crawls out of the pit to deceive the nations and bring them against the camp of the saints. And that is what's happened since the French Revolution. Satan crawled out of the pit. It took him a hundred years to do that. He was emancipated by Napoleon and, and then by countries all over Europe. Once the Jew was made a citizen was taken out of the pit and put on an equal footing with white Christian Europeans, which began, the process began with the French Revolution and the emancipation of the Jews. 
Once that happened, the Jew has been able to take over white society and bring all of the other races of the world against the camp of the saints, meaning that all of the other nations are looting and pillaging and infiltrating and intermarrying with white Christians today. How is that not perfectly clear to just about anyone who could read? That's exactly the process that's gone on for these last 400 years. Yeah, and uh, every Bible has originated in Europe, right? I mean, you know, English, German, and, you know, other languages, but it was all written by white Europeans. They were the ones who kept teaching it and spreading it and preserving it and even fought against the Catholic Church who tried to um, destroy it completely and have all Bibles removed. It was all white European people. Well, well, absolutely. I mean, white Europe only needed one generation of apostles from the ancient land of Israel, from Judea, one generation of apostles from Judea. And all of a sudden, and, and it was persecuted for 300 years. Apostolic Christianity was basically, the, the way Christianity should be taught, was basically persecuted out of existence. But Europe nevertheless became Christian and started keeping the commandments of Christ with one generation of apostles. But now for 500 years, we've been sending missionaries to Africa to try to convert monkeys into Christians. And the missionaries, that they go there and sometimes they get eaten. So they started bringing guns with them. They started bringing soldiers with them and, and creating, that began the, the period of colonialism. So under colonialism, you can't really control the people unless you control their religion. So they forcibly convert these tribes. But as soon as the white missionaries leave, the tribes revert to their old ways and start cannibalism and, and fornication and eating each other again. That they revert right back to their primordial state, to their animalistic state. They could never maintain Christianity without a white presence to force it on them yeah to them christianity is about getting free stuff right it's uh it's a charity organization where they get free schooling uh free cars free clothing free food free housing right. you know everything that that's the only reason they would go okay yeah we'll accept christianity as long as it comes with all the uh free stuff absolutely that's that that's the other side of the coin that when the when when the churches can't force them, they bribe them and they give them all kinds of gifts. They shower them with gifts and food and right, exactly, that they build buildings and homes and churches for them. Who did that for Europeans? Nobody did that for Europeans. My ancestors came here. Some of my ancestors came here as, as um, religious exiles to early New England and, and nobody built houses for them. And, and they were in a hostile environment in a barren, in, on a barren continent filled with savages. And, and they had to make their own niche. They had to carve out life for themselves. Nobody came and built houses for them. And they brought Christianity with them. And they stayed Christian in the face of all that adversity. Nobody did it for them. 
Why do we need to send missions to Africa? We brought them the word. I mean, it was a mistake that we did that, but we're using this as an example. Only whites can be Christian. Only whites stay Christian. Only whites accept Christianity of, of their own volition. The other races, Christianity was never meant for them, ever. And they're not part of these promises. And they're not part of these prophecies. Yeah, and that's right across the board. Every single white nation is always the same. You know, even the, um, the as we discussed before, the Nordic countries, which were the last ones to convert, once they understood it and they understood Christianity, they accepted it. They never went back or said, you know, we'll only stay Christian as long as you send us, you know, so this these goods every year, then we will pretend to be Christians. They just accepted it and became great nations and even empires for a while. So we fulfilled all those prophecies and, and all the words of the book and all the purpose of the gospel has been fulfilled in whites. The problem today is that we have Satan, which is the Jew, deceiving all the other nations and races and our own. Satan would deceive the nations so that, and, and, and we're just as deceived by Satan as anybody else. We're more deceived by Satan. Mexicans aren't deceived by Satan. They're having a party. They're looting and pillaging. They're living large. They're not deceived by Satan. We are. The Mexicans know what's going on. They're coming into America to take it for themselves. They're not deceived by Satan. They're just getting what, what, what they could get. They're, they might be deceived by Satan into believing that they could succeed because they won't. In the end, they won't. In the end, all the Mexicans, along with all the Jews, are going to fit into that proverbial Volkswagen. <laughs> no problem. Well, well that that's that that's the way it plays out it it's that that's what the scripture promises us but we are so deceived by these by satan by these damn jews into thinking that jesus was a jew so we should worship jews instead of jesus that's what it boils down to and and white christians today actually are worshiping jews instead of Jesus. And the Jews are the God of white Christians. Whatever the Jews say, oh, the Jew says you have to accept these poor black people. They're, they're disadvantaged. They can't do it on their own. You got to take them. And the white nations open their gates, open the floodgates to all these beasts from Africa and are overrun by these beasts and are being destroyed because the Jews said that it's the good thing that we should do. So who's our God? Jesus? Did Jesus say we should do that? Or the Jews? Yeah, their masters are playing on our apathy and our sympathy, right? The Jews are absolute perfectionists in doing that. Absolutely. <clears throat> they play on our sense of mercy and justice and altruism and empathy, and, and it destroys us because it's all misplaced. Okay, the last point here is that the 10th the point, that the Bible prophesied that the children of Israel would have a new language. And, and it's incredible that the Jews try to turn this upside down and claim that it prophesies that we would go back to the Hebrew language, that Jews would go back to the Hebrew language. But that's not what it's saying at all. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, the people were speaking pure Hebrew from all that we could understand, 
for then will I turn to people to a pure turn to the people a pure language that they may all call upon the name of Yahweh to serve him with one consent. So the Jews try to apply that to their own attempts to speak um, what they think is pure Hebrew today. And that's bullshit. That's not what it's saying at all. Because when Zephaniah wrote those words, they were speaking much better Hebrew than any Jew could ever speak today. We can interpret this along with Isaiah chapter 28, however. And in Isaiah's time, who's before Zephaniah, we can't say that they weren't speaking Hebrew. Yet in Isaiah chapter 28, we read, for precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. It's talking about the learning of doctrine. Here a little and there a little. And then it says in verse 11, for with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. And that's an absolutely clear indication that God will speak to his people with what an ancient Hebrew would consider to be stammering lips, a language that the ancient Hebrew cannot understand, and another tongue, which is another language. So that's two ways of saying stammering lips and another tongue, that the people that he will speak to this people, that the people would have a language that was not Hebrew. That's absolute proof that people, that the children of Israel would at some point in the future from Isaiah chapter 28 and from Zephaniah chapter 3, they would have a different language other than Hebrew. And that's the plan of God, and it would be a better language, according to Zephaniah. Yeah, right. Um, I don't know if you could claim that it is English, but at least all Israelites, although, you know, vast majority, at least understand it um, to a degree, right? I mean, I know, like, French, they hate to speak English, um, you know, just as an example. But um, a large portion of whites can at least speak it as a second language or can understand it, you know, partially if they watch it on TV. And, um, you know, as we said, with all the Bibles being um, Eurocentric, you know, the, mo the most modern ones, like the King James, the most popular, that was in English, uh, at least Old English. And that has spread everywhere, you know, in this new language. Well, well, right. The French, the, the French have their own problems. Uh, I mean, they have a lot of national pride, even though they're allowing themselves to be overrun by Muslims and most of them are accepting it, that they have their own sense of national pride and apps, actually have a, a um, resentment towards the English because the French thought that they should have been the dominant culture of Europe at one time. They were on a precipice of that, but they were never there. But they thought they should have deserved that, especially with Napoleon, right? And, and that the pride that they felt when Napoleon basically conquered half of Europe. So the English defeated Napoleon. The English and the Germans defeated Napoleon. So the French, that they had no right to claim hegemony of, of the Christian world no right whatsoever, but they have that pride and they think they do. They have resentment towards the English for that. So they, that they come up with a metric system. They try to get rid of the imperial system that, and that almost worked, right? It's still there, but 
it, it just about worked in England, I, from what I understand, through legislation, but the common people still cling to the imperial system, I'm sure. Well, well that, that's all competition and, and French pride that they hate to speak English. But in spite of the French, English is the dominant language of, of um, white Christian nations today. I, I mean, I can't speak a lick of German and I hate to speak French. I hate to even pronounce it, right? I mean, I hated French and the idea of speaking French so much when I was a child that I had to take two years of Spanish in high school because it was the only alternative. So <laughs> they stopped um, teaching German in American high schools about two or three years before I got there in the early 70s. So... I got screwed out of the opportunity to learn German in high school, which I really wanted because my grandfather spoke German, but he wouldn't for, for cultural reasons here in America. He, he was shamed by the, um, the defeat of Germany and, and the bad reputation of Germans in the world wars. And many American Germans were, it, it's incredible psychology. The, the psychology of the wars and 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 the um the the feeling of shame you could get because your ancestral nation is on the wrong side or the losing side is incredible. Yeah, I think they're trying to introduce Mandarin as the uh, second language now, but um, Yiddish, the um, you know the bastard demonized language the Jews speak, it's not Hebrew. It's just a German dialect, right? I mean, well, they, they were very sneaky. They got all the Hebrew letters, and and uh, I believe is that true that they a few centuries ago they um, tried to change the language to incorporate the Hebrew letters in order to deceive us, so they could pretend that they were speaking the ancient Hebrew of the Bible. Yeah, Yiddish. Yiddish is certainly not ancient Hebrew, and and it. I really don't think that it ever was. It was originally a German dialect with words from Hebrew borrowed into it. And, and that came to the rabbis who continued to study the Masoretic Hebrew manuscripts. They did. And, and the Talmud, the language of the Talmud, which is a form of Masoretic Hebrew. So, so yes... The rabbis, Yiddish was a German dialect, and the rabbis brought Hebrew words into it from the, their scriptures, right? So that doesn't make it Hebrew. And among Jews, Yiddish is probably the dominant common language today among Jews, whether they be Russian Jews, American Jews, or Israeli Jews. They are trying hard to um, bring Hebrew back, in, in, especially in Israel, but it's artificial. Uh, I mean, first, it's an artificial modernized form of Hebrew, but, but second, the attempt to do it is not natural. They're trying to force it. And what, where people spoke Yiddish, which is a German dialect, even though it has 
a lot of elements of other languages in it. I mean, these Jews, as they roamed from nation to nation in Europe, that they picked up Polish words and Hungarian words and Russian words and incorporated them all into Yiddish as well. But the Jews, basically, Yiddish is their um, natural language today after many centuries of use, and it's not Hebrew at all. And for them to try to reconst reconstruct Hebrew to um, describe things in today's society, they have to add a lot of artificial words to it. And it's not biblical Hebrew at all. It's just a facade. It's a charade. It's a game they're playing. Yeah, just so they can pretend to be the Israelites. Right. But um, also um, our modern language, English, you can actually trace it back, like the letters, the alphabet, you know, as you explained with Greek and then the Roman, you can also trace the English alphabet back to the Roman alphabet, which is basically the Phoenician alphabet. We are essentially using slightly modifying letters uh, that our Hebrew ancestors used. We've just got a, a language that's 2,000 years evolved, right? Well, well right. And, and that goes back to where we started at the beginning of this presentation. And, and I'm going to try to keep this brief because it's getting awfully late. At, at the, um, the very beginning of my own Christian identity studies, I had gone through that Strong's, Strong's Concordance and examined the language. And, and I made a list of about perhaps 500 words. And I made this list in 1997, but it's still on Christogenia today in, in the form that I made it back then, from the notes that I took back then. 500 English words, perhaps, and, and also some Greek, Latin, and German words that I knew, and made this list of English is from Hebrew, English words from Hebrew. And it's unmistakable. If I could take the time to do that again today, I would, because of my language study since then, I could probably double the size, maybe triple the size of that list and add many, many Greek words to it. Because a lot of Greek words do come from Hebrew roots. So I never had the opportunity to study um, Gaelic or Welsh for myself. But I have often read, and other scholars, scholars of the 19th century, have made um, copious illustrations of the fact that ancient Gaelic and Welsh are also very similar to Hebrew. Of course, I wouldn't expect them to be similar to Yiddish, but they're very similar to Hebrew. Yes, I, I, I believe that, and I've read it for a long time, but... I haven't had the chance to ever study Gaelic or Welsh for myself. And that's exactly what you would expect. And also there's the phenomenon that many of our, you know, English words, and I'm sure the other European languages, that we have certain words from Persia or Assyria or Medes that you can see in their ancient language. And that's what you'd expect if we were deported to those regions lived near them or amongst them for a short time, we would pick up certain words. And then as we, you know, came into Europe, we would maybe still use some of those words. Well, well right. And, and secular, the, the Jews, modern academia, the concept of the university is only five or 600 years old. I, I mean, there were schools before that. There were schools in ancient Greek 
Greece and, and in ancient Persia, there were schools, but they weren't systematized like the modern university system is. And the modern university system, the concept of universities and colleges and departments for certain studies has developed only over the last maybe 500 years in, in to the degree of systematization that we have it today. So the modern university system is fairly new and has always, um, for, for Eastern studies, Oriental studies, Hebrew studies, it's always relied on Jews, on European Jews. So, so our language studies, anthropology as a science in America was invented and dominated by Jews, and it still is today. Anthropology as, as a separate science really wasn't invented until the 18th century, and, and it was heavily influenced by the German Jew, Franz Boas. And if you look at, and, and I have this in articles from anthropologists today who have written about the Jewish domination of anthropology ever since it was developed as a science in, in the late 19th century. Franz Boas, the Jew, the German Jew, being one of the um, leaders in that field. Well, well, I'm sure that we know who propped him up and promoted him was other wealthy Jews. I mean, that's the way it works. That's the way Jews operate. But everything that we understand about the development of our language and our early culture is given to us through this Jewish filter. If we really looked at the study of language, we would understand that our European languages are essentially Hebrew and had their own branches of divergence in early in our history as our people traveled to diverse places. Greek, a lot of Greek is Hebrew. It's mixed with non-Hebrew Ionian Greek, but a lot of Greek is Hebrew and and the Greek alphabet and, and the, he, the Greek language come through linear B and, and linear A, which isn't even deciphered yet, and, and it probably won't ever be enough examples of it to decipher it, but a lot of linear B is deciphered and, and comes from Crete and Cyp Cyprus and places like that, and you can see that it's a stepping stone from Hebrew to Greek. And there's a lot of, if you look at the Liddell and Scott, the ninth edition of their lexicon, there's a lot of linear B words supplied in the supplement to that lexicon. So there's a lot of what we see this stepping stone in many places from Hebrew to modern European languages. And as the children of Israel were in captivity, in Mesopotamia and around the Black and Caspian Seas, yes, a lot of Persian and Akkadian words and, and language from the Persians, Assyrians, and Medes were introduced into their language. We pick up words so easily from other cultures and other people, whether they're white or not, we pick up words very easily and if they meet a specific purpose, we use them and adapt them to our own language. There's countless examples of that in modern English. The whole Indo-European theory falls apart once you understand Christian identity 
it becomes a whole different theory. This Indo-European language theory becomes a whole different theory and a much more precise one, I'm convinced. Absolutely. Well, I believe we covered the 10 points. I, I hope these last two weren't um, weren't shorted in any way, but it's getting awfully late. This program is going to approach two and a half hours. So we should probably <laughs> save the rest for next week. Yeah, that's no problem. Well, thank you for being here. Yeah, always a pleasure, Bill. Thanks for having me. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of the European race. Thank you. Thank you. Praise Christ. Praise Yahweh.